0: Transform your investment strategy with the MD Platinum Global Private Equity 2023 Trust. This unique offering exclusive to physician families uses non-traditional strategies that allow you to diversify your portfolio and potentially help grow your wealth over the long term. With access to institutional level private equity opportunities, this solution could be what you need to help you meet your financial goals. Learn more about this limited time opportunity at md.ca slash private equity.
1: Hi, I'm Mujala Malay.
0: I'm Blair Brigham. This is the CMAJ podcast. Shola, today we're talking about a five things you need to know paper on preoperative anemia in major elective surgery. And I found the top line of this to be super interesting. I want to get your take as a surgeon. But the authors have suggested that a preoperative hemoglobin less than 130 or 13 for my Stanford friends would be Predictive of poor outcomes. And so they're recommending that for elective surgery, people get their hemoglobin driven up to 130, not with blood transfusions, but by treating things like iron deficiency. What's your take on that? Do you wait for everyone's hemoglobin to hit
1: 130 before you take them to the OR? Nope. And nope. <laughs> no, at no, all. No. I'm just like, Hemoglobin now. it's fine. I'm not gonna lose any blood. Um, obviously, with certain patients, like, you know, I would consent for blood. But when they describe the complications you can have, it really was for me, at least practice changing hmm. to want to be treating this and not just saying eh, it's not 60. It's fine.
0: Well, I'm super curious what the authors have to say because I'm always taught for at least ICU in emergency medicine, we try not to transfuse people. We tolerate anemia. We tolerate pretty profound anemia sometimes. And so to hear that even a, a hemoglobin of 120 can be predictive of a poor outcome after an elective surgery. I just find this so fascinating. So I'm really excited to get into it with the authors here. And then afterwards, we're going to talk to um, one of our dear friends, a hematologist who's been on this show before, uh, who's going to help us understand a little bit more about how we should be achieving optimum hemoglobin levels before elective surgery.
1: And also talking about, uh, in particular, just the difference in target levels uh, between male and females. I'm really looking forward to this.
0: Let's get into it. Dr. Clarissa Skarepsky and Dr. Yulia Lin are two authors of the practice paper in CMAJ entitled Five Things to Know About Preoperative Anemia in Major Elective Surgery. Dr. Skarepsky is a third-year internal medicine resident at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Yulia Lin is Division Head of Transfusion Medicine and Tissue Bank at Sunnybrook Health Sciences in Toronto. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having us today.
0: I want to start off by something I was surprised by in the five things you need to know article. And that was the number 130. I feel like I'm always being told that lower hemoglobins are fine. You can tolerate them. You don't need to transfuse. We go as low as 70, 65 in the ICU where I work. Tell me where does that number come from in that top line recommendation?
3: So I
2: think at its core, the number 130, it stems from how anemia has been historically defined. I think one of the things we mention in our five things is that traditionally a hemoglobin of 130 in men and a hemoglobin of 120 in women is what's been used to define the value of normal, the kind of threshold between anemic versus non-anemic. So when it comes to the surgical population and the preoperative population, there's been a lot of large retrospective studies been done in the u.s in europe all over the world that had looked at this number of 130 is actually the cutoff where we start to see impacts of preoperative anemia on surgical outcomes and important outcomes including things like mortality morbidity how long we stay in hospital complications we can experience so
0: hang on you're saying that if your hemoglobin is less than one third let's say it's 118 and you go for surgery you actually have worse outcomes even if your hemoglobin's that high, like to me, that's—I mean, that's through the roof for an ICU doctor. So, people with a hemoglobin—so, h- how do we get people to 130? Then, so are you delaying their surgery and treating them for anemia and working up their anemia beforehand?
2: So, I think there's a lot of good questions to to tease apart there. So, it's true. Yeah.
0: I'm excited about this. This no, is like really surprising to it's me. It's
2: good, and I think anemia is, as you say, is so common, especially when when we're dealing with inpatients. A lot of the time, like again, like as an internal medicine resident on the ward every day, we see 90s, 80s, hundreds, and we don't really blink an eye or think about it. So why this is so different is we're really focusing on an elective population and a lot of times an ambulatory patient population where. Mm there should be or there could be an opportunity to intervene if found early enough to try and bring that hemoglobin level up and the number 130 it that's what's so interesting about a lot of the retrospective data that's been done in this area they found that even mild anemia so when you're looking at numbers 110 to 120 120 to 130 it still has an impact on outcomes it does worsen with the severity of anemia But we know even small changes in the preoperative hemoglobin number between changes by 10 can impact outcomes.
0: So tell me more about those outcomes. What happens to patients when they are operated on without a hemoglobin of 130?
2: So there's a spectrum. Preoperative anemia has been shown to be independently associated with an increased risk of 30 and 90-day postoperative mortality. And then other things as Hmm. well. So postoperative morbidity, things that they've looked at are increased rates of postoperative complications like stroke, myocardial infarction, infection, the degree for how long patients stay in hospital, and also readmission rates. So how often are patients being readmitted at the 30-day mark or the 90-day mark? It's a lot of things, but they're all things that have been seen. And caveat is this is a lot of observational data, but these are all things that preoperative anemia has been associated with observationally.
1: When we're talking about operations, what ca- you talk about major elective surgeries. So what's classified under major elective surgeries?
2: So there's been a lot of studies in this area that do use variable definitions. But some of the common things that we talk about are orthopedic surgeries. Um, so whether it's lower limb arthroplasty, total knees, cardiac surgeries, a big patient population where preoperative anemia has been studied. So your cabbage patients, valve replacements, And also in the cancer surgery population, so those undergoing colorectal cancer resections, hepatectomies, gynecologic surgeries, patients undergoing hysterectomy, these all fall within that definition.
0: Anemia, I think, often sort of doesn't get much attention. Like a lot of people come and go from the emergency department with the hemoglobin of 95 and people are like, eh, whatever, not my problem. Tell me, why do you think that anemia doesn't get that appreciation? And how do you hope that this most recent five things you need to know is going to change everyone's practice?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's funny, when you talk about the operating room and anemia, often anemia is sort of in the background, just as you said, like people just see it, and they're like, Oh, it's fine. But You know, we don't know whether it's just a reflection of that patient's underlying illness, and that is what's leading to the anemia, or maybe there's actually something that's treatable and correctable. And I guess that's what we're really trying to advocate for, is that in some of these cases, a good proportion of these cases are things like iron deficiency anemia, which are completely treatable and preventable. And so we think, why would that not be something that we would try to optimize, just as we would try to optimize a whole host of different factors before going to the operating room for these patients to do better? We can't often change, you know, the blood loss that occurs. So we're trying to decrease that There is no blood loss in
1: surgery. There is never it blood is loss. Blood loss is note. less than <laughs> five months. Thank you.
4: Absolutely. I think I totally would want to be in your OR for sure, Jonah. Um But unfortunately, working in the blood bank, sometimes bleeding happens. And so we're trying to do everything that we can to try to optimize that patient before they get to the OR.
1: What's the lead time in terms of optimization? So I'm thinking, for example, you have mm-hmm. someone who presented with iron deficient anemia. They were scoped and it ends up showing that they have a sequel cancer and, you know, their hemoglobin is 99. What should be the next steps be and how long would it take
4: so, in a lot of these cases, we, for example, here in Ontario, we have a patient blood management program called OnTrack. And so there are nurses at 23 different hospitals that can help with optimizing patients for surgery. So, for example, in that case, our institution, we have the diagnostic assessment nurses. And so, even before they see the surgeon, when that first um, consult or referral goes to the nurse, She can actually detect, oh, there's iron deficiency. We're going to refer her to the blood conservation team and we can get her in to start on some type of iron supplementation. Hmm. I would say that, you know, typically we say that the hemoglobin will increase by 10. Points per week, um, oh. especially in that type of setting. So for that type of setting, if we had three weeks, we probably could very much optimize that patient to a normal hemoglobin, and hmm. that would make you excited, I think. I know, because honestly, I just ignore,
1: <laughs> I just kind of ignore the hemoglobin that's not below hundred, yeah. and just said, "Oh, we'll, just, we'll deal with it when we get there." But knowing that it only literally takes three weeks, which is around the same time to get into the operating room, makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Other than iron deficiency, what other common causes would there be for anemia that you could fix within a week or two?
4: Yeah, so there's an iron deficiency, there's anemia of inflammation, which may have a component of iron deficiency. And those are a couple of the two most common. But there would, for example, also be anemia of kidney disease. So, And in those cases, we can supplement, for example, with epoetin alpha or erythropoiesis stimulating agents. So Mm. we can increase the hemoglobin in short times. Ideally, we would have six to eight weeks. You don't always have that, but ideally we would have more time. And so so there are ways to optimize. And and remember that in some of these studies, even a 10-point increase or decrease in the hemoglobin made a difference. So that may mean the difference between having two units versus one unit. And again, with every unit that's transfused, we see worse outcomes.
0: So here's where I'm getting a little bit mixed up. On one end, your paper makes a strong argument that if your hemoglobin is less than 130, you're going to have potentially a worse outcome. And yet there's also this literature around transfusions causing potentially worse outcomes in this very conservative approach to transfusions. Help me reconcile those two things. Is it the transfusion itself? Because it's like... A graph from somebody else that's causing outcomes to be worse? Is it the volume? Is it I'm just kind of mixed up on that?
4: That's a it's a actually it's a great question and it's a hard one to sort of reconcile. I think when you look at it for transfusions postoperatively, we don't know whether the worse outcomes that we see in observational studies are due to the fact that the patient got to the point where they needed a transfusion. So All these bad things happen, like you have myocardial Mm. ischemia, you have a stroke, you have all of these other things that happen because you're so anemic, and then you get the transfusion. So is the transfusion just a confounder and a, a sign that the patient dropped to that level in the first place versus transfusion adding an additional poor prognostic factor? I will say that if you look at randomized control trials of transfusion at different thresholds, 70 versus 90, there's no difference in outcomes, Mm -hmm. um, different differences in the amount of blood that people receive. And there's differences, I think, in transfusion reactions, but that hasn't been definitively shown. So I think the transfusions post, I do wonder if some of that is just the fact that you got to that level and had some bad outcomes that required the transfusion, which then again speaks to trying to optimize them as much as he can beforehand so that they don't even drop to that hemoglobin and you don't even have to make a decision about transfusion.
0: Right. Okay. That makes a lot more sense.
1: So you recommend a preoperative hemoglobin of 130 for both female and male patients. So we normally see a different targets for male and female. Why do you advise for a single target for hemoglobin?
2: So that came from the initial WHO definitions of that are sex-based, like biological sex-based definitions of what we consider to be anemia. But observational data has shown that women are, and this is referring to sex, women are at a higher risk of losing a greater proportional red blood cell mass given for the same amount of estimated blood loss. So if a woman loses 500 cc's of blood versus a man were to lose 500 cc's of blood during an operation, the women actually lose a greater proportional of their circulating red blood oh, cell mass.
1: So that- Really? Yeah. and Why is that?
2: I think it's- Is that
1: just physiological? I
2: think it's physiologic. I think related to things we look about are women have lower red blood cell masses than men for a smaller body surface area on average. Yuli, I don't know if there were other things related to that you could comment on.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because using that hemoglobin, if you look at data- Over time, women are more often transfused after the same surgery Mm. as men. So, so I wonder if because we've been using these differential hemoglobins that we're kind of disadvantaging women. So, Mm. in fact, I feel like we need to be more aggressive with women so that they actually have a good hemoglobin as they're going in, undergoing the same surgery. In the U.S. data, when they look at it, there's no difference between males and females in terms of their outcomes or what level things happen at, which is 130. So there's definitely been a real move within preoperative anemia management and other areas outside of preoperative anemia management to treat males and females with the same hemoglobin.
0: Hmm. So- I feel like we've been so excited talking to you here that our queue lines have been a little all over the map. I want to give our listeners a real chunk of information that they can take away to participate in screening for preoperative anemia. So I'm going to try a couple things here and then feel free to add on. Number one, whether you're male or female, a hemoglobin of 130 or greater is preferred before any major elective surgery. Number two, most commonly, any anemia under 130 will be iron deficiency, which within a couple of weeks, you might actually be able to get the hemoglobin up if you treat it. And third, if it's a more acute situation, transfusions of blood products are not your way to reduce mortality, either pre-op or (laughs) post-op. How's that for some reason? It's (laughs) amazing.
4: I'm so happy right now.
0: (laughs) But I must admit something. Uh, Yulia, you live and breathe this. What else do you want everyone listening to know?
4: Well, I think that when we think about patient blood management, especially thinking about the audience, who I hope is, of course, lots of different physicians, but also primary care providers, that primary care providers, as soon as they make a referral for a surgical consult, really they can at that point check the patient's CBC, check their iron stores and see if they can get them started on iron supplementation early so that there's even more time to sort of improve that hemoglobin if it is, for example, something as simple as iron deficiency before they get to the operating room or even before they get to the consults.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. I find this fascinating. I'm going to start caring more about anemia.
0: Yay! (laughs) Dr. Skurepski is a third-year internal medicine resident at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Yulia Lin is Division Head of Transfusion Medicine in the Tissue Bank at Sunnybrook Health Sciences in Toronto. Coming up after the break, we're going to take a closer look at the rationale behind the different anemia guidelines for men and women. Are they grounded in evidence or
1: something else? Dr. Michelle Scholzberg is the Head of Hematology-Oncology and the Director of the Hematology-Oncology Clinical Research Group, at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. As we mentioned before, the CMAJ practice paper recommends a single standard for preoperative anemia for both men and women. That's a shift from the current WHO guidelines. We're gonna take a critical look at those guidelines with Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us again, Michelle. How are you?
3: Thank you, Joel, it's wonderful being here. Thank you for putting up with me again.
1: No, you're one of our favorite guests. So currently, the WHO guidelines, what are they for diagnosing anemia in, I guess, biological men and women? Great question. So
3: currently, the WHO suggests sex-based thresholds for anemia. So in biological males, the threshold to define anemia is a hemoglobin under 130 grams per liter, and for females, under 120.
1: Uh, so I guess my first question is why?
3: <laughs> That's a re- another really great question and a really loaded question. And I'm about to give you a loaded answer. So this is an example of structural discrimination in medicine. The WHO first put forth these recommendations in 1968. And this was on the basis of four published reports and one set of unpublished observations only which two of only which two in fact looked at sex-based differences in hemoglobin thresholds to define anemia so as a clinical epidemiologist we would define that as data that is at very high risk of bias and certainly outdated and why that's particularly problematic is it normalizes possible anemia amongst females. Where did this come from? Why do we think that females have a different hemoglobin threshold? Largely, we are learning that this is due to untreated iron deficiency amongst women or individuals with the capacity to menstruate of reproductive age. And that is because people who menstruate lose at least 15 to 20 milligrams of elemental iron per cycle, and they may or may not get pregnant. And with each pregnancy, it takes about a gram of iron to make a baby to make the extra maternal blood volume to account for the local losses to account for the placenta to be produced. And I know a gram doesn't sound like a lot of iron, but that's equivalent to 177 large stakes. So it's really easy to be iron deficient when you're regularly menstruating, and because iron-rich foods are expensive, and also it's really easy and, in fact, impossible to eat your way out of iron deficiency in pregnancy, so it just uh, becomes very problematic throughout all of those years.
1: So, just going back, what do you think the impact of having this? And I think you've touched on it a bit, like having these differences in guidelines, like in the terms of the quality of health, quality of life, and health for women who menstruate. What is the impact of this? The impact is
3: huge and multifaceted because essentially laboratory-based thresholds are what defines our concept of normal as clinicians, right? And as clinicians, when a result comes from the lab and if it's flagged or not flagged, that really shapes our view of the patient and their experience, right? So, the impact of iron deficiency, even in the absence of anemia, is substantial and it's associated with a decreased health related quality of life. In the presence of anemia, it's even worse. And there are clear associations with various morbidities and also mortality. But we know in individuals with iron deficiency in the absence of anemia that health related quality of life is lower on the basis of fatigue, lower IQ on the basis of diminished attention, memory, and speed, lower exercise tolerance. Diminished cardiovascular reserve. So, of course, as a hematologist, I'm totally biased about the importance of iron for erythropoiesis and production of red blood cells. But iron is important for many cells in our body, ranging from myocytes to neurons to cytochromes in our liver and other metabolic enzymes. And it's even directly involved in the generation of ATP. So, it's really important, and the impacts are huge. And there are also additional impacts for pregnant individuals for the person who's carrying the fetus. And also there's evolving literature indicating that
1: there are impacts for the baby as well that can be enduring. It's astounding just to think about it. I guess it's it's also nerve-wracking to think about how many more systemic inequalities do we have, not just in delivery of healthcare, but in something that's supposed to be either high or low, not knowing that it's actually built on... Discrimination and some, or, or all sorts of inequities.
3: Exactly. It's, I would say, my clinical and research interest in this area began over a decade ago. And the more that I learn, the more appalled that I've become. And what's even more frustrating is that there's resistance to changing perceptions and really reevaluating. The literature using proper methodology. Um, I have had multiple experiences in the very recent past where I've presented this work and presented our data where I was met with a lot of anger and frustration from some individuals in the audience, physicians, indicating that we're going too far with the idea of social determinants of health. And that there are biological differences that we are not even considering. Now, I don't mean to imply as a hematologist who's become an expert (laughs) in bleeding disorders and anemia that I am not considering biological differences that exist between males and females. Of course, androgens and growth hormone impact erythropoiesis. Of course, estrogen has some inhibitory effect on erythropoiesis as well. Not denying that. Absolutely not. But there is evidence in the literature indicating that when you treat patients with iron deficiency, <laughs> males versus females, that there's an increment in the hemoglobin in the females and less so in the males, suggesting that the discrepancy really relates to untreated iron deficiency. And there is now evidence <laughs> that comes from large data sets showing that the proximity in the hemoglobin thresholds for males and females is really tight. It's really close before menarche. It separates during the reproductive years, during menstruation, pregnancy, and lactation, all of which are high iron demand states. And then guess what happens after menopause? They come back together and it it goes even deeper. So there are trimester-based Pregnancy anemia thresholds, right? That change over the course of pregnancy. That is largely due to untreated iron deficiency. And the whole concept of dilution is overblown. If it was all on the basis of dilution, I would not be able to correct anemia every single time that I do when I treat a pregnant patient with intravenous iron.
1: I guess I'm a bit confused and just perplexed about why such strong reactions and. Would it be the end of the world if we had the same threshold? Would, you know, the difference of 10 make such a, like, I just, I just don't understand why it's such, why it's so polarized. Like, hasn't the World Health Organization revisited this?
3: So there have been meetings in the recent past to discuss revisions. This was another really important, but I must say, distressing learning for me. I've come to realize that anemia is very political. What? I know. How is anemia political? I know, right? Well, because we are privileged. We we live in Canada and we live in a place where people can have access to healthcare services universally. We don't have universal pharmacare, of course. Anyways, in general, we're doing pretty well, right? So we know that globally, 30% of the population has anemia. And the majority of that anemia is due to iron deficiency. There are some parts of the world, and this is on the basis of WHO data, where sixty-five percent of the population has anemia. So whoa. If we were to reframe what's normal versus abnormal, then that means that we're redefining the proportion of the population or the prevalence of a disease state in a given country.
1: Would that not mean we need to do more about it? Like I don't understand.
0: So No, it would make it look like some place suddenly had way more anemia than it did the year before. Is it like a KPI? Like countries are like, we're going to reduce anemia. And if you, I don't know, remember that West Wing episode where they wanted to like redefine something and then they couldn't because it would look like there were more Americans without jobs just by redefining it? I guess for me,
1: but what I feel like I'm seeing is that by not redefining it, you get to ignore a problem and not actually come up with solutions to treat it instead of saying, okay, well, we know that this many countries have... Iron deficiency in its population. Let's make this a target. But it's like, well, let's just pretend it's not there. It's like how I do with my bills. I don't open them, so there's no bills. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it sounds like it's not just the lab threshold. Like I can think of a thousand times when I've heard a colleague say to say a pregnant woman, oh, don't worry, your hemoglobin's 97. That's pretty good for someone who's pregnant and just moved right on, right? Like next, mm-hmm. n- not even checking iron. I do that too. Oh, your hemoglobin's 97? Eh, you're pregnant there's this threshold in our own minds like that anemia just doesn't matter.
3: Yeah. Right, because it's been normalized. Exactly. Right. And also
0: by the guidelines.
3: But I don't want to imply that this isn't really tough to address. And it's not that it's so tough to address with that one individual patient who's in front of you, but you know, the three of us are busy clinicians, right? lots of patients over the course of the day, you're reviewing lots and lots of lab tests. The sheer prevalence of this problem is enormous. And because it's so common, it requires not just, oh, the treatment and et cetera, it requires access to treatment, access to education, because it just isn't as easy as saying, here, here, take your iron pills, see you later. Well, there are estimates up to 70% of patients on iron supplements, oral iron supplements have GI side effects. So it's not so easy. It's not so easy. And access to intravenous iron, not so easy. Access to medications to control heavy menstrual bleeding, not so easy. There are lots of barriers to care from a women's health lens. Of course, when I'm use, using the word woman and "women," I'm I'm using it honestly, deliberately to highlight some pretty important knowledge and care gaps for women. But of course, I don't mean to sure. be exclusive. It refers to all patients who have the capacity to menstruate.
0: I don't want to move on from this global and systemic chat, but I do want to get into sort of the individual patient challenges. And you mentioned getting IV iron for someone, which for family doctors can be like nearly impossible. And I have people sent to the ER for iron transfusions, just because the family docs like, that's the only way you're going to get iron. Just go to the ER or patients who come to the ER frequently and say, I'm just here for iron. And like, for me, it's I'm like, cool, like, I can do that for you. But how silly that you had to wait four and a half hours just to see me so I could write for some IV iron. What are some of the sort of lower hanging fruit that we can work on so that clinicians in Canada can get people iron when they think they need it?
3: That's that is the point. Blair, that is the point.
0: <laughs> I feel like you're going to have an no. aneurysm, Michelle. No <laughs> one else can see you on camera but Jola and I, and you're like literally losing it.
3: <laughs> The problem there is also systemic. So access to infusion centers is a challenge. Private infusion centers require private insurance or ability to pay out of pocket. Which demographic of individuals is most commonly affected by iron deficiency those of lower socioeconomic status, and also those of minority race and ethnicity. So with one foul swoop right there, we've just ensured that more rich white people are going to get treated. What about public infusion centers? What about at hospitals? Okay? Very few hospitals have the resources to dedicate infusion centers for non-chemotherapeutics. And culturally, we are positioned for good reason, to prioritize cancer care. And currently non-malignant hematology is underfunded. And many cancer centers are refusing referrals for patients with iron deficiency because they cannot accommodate the volumes.
1: What I was thinking as we're talking is that by not addressing these inequalities, by resisting against it, we're actually holding ourselves back from innovation. Like this is something that is rich, whether you're doing it for lower income settings to figure out a way of delivering iron in an affordable, compact way. And then also here of like actually creating programs that actually address this. This is something that when we talk about improving women's health, this is something that it's like it is actually low hanging fruit if we just want to address it. Correct.
3: If it's prioritized if it's prioritized
1: and that requires resources. Awesome. Thank you so very much, Michelle. We've sure. covered a lot. <laughs> Dr. Michelle Scholzberg is the head of hematology and oncology and the director of the Hematology and Oncology Clinical Research Group at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Jola, sounds
0: like being anemic is like an emergency.
1: <laughs> well, I think part of it is that, and I think anyone that works in women's health will say that when you're dealing with the female sex, that it is not prioritized. Like, you right. know, patients are are anemic. First of all, the guidelines for their anemia is different. So we're tolerating a higher degree of anemia, but then that's not even being dealt with properly.
0: And even if they're not anemic, they could still be iron deficient. Exactly. So are you going to be ordering iron for people in clinic and delaying surgeries until you get that hemoglobin up? Like, how does this change your day to day work?
1: Well, I think for me, anyone, well, first of all, for anyone that's having major surgery, I now know that there's someone I can connect with at Scarborough Health uh, (laughs) that can help me increase their iron within weeks, right? Right. Um, And so that I can do. For patients who are having non-emergent surgeries, like their gallbladders, those type of things, I I am comfortable in starting someone on iron. And so it would be to order iron studies on them, make sure I CC the family doctor, start Mm -hmm. them on some iron, and then check it again. I do think you it's the you weigh it together. Like if we're already waiting three months for your surgery, that's a great time to like, you know, try and prove that, right? Um, so I think Oftentimes, as specialists, we kind of defer things to family physicians and say, well, you know, somebody else can take care of that. But this actually directly impacts the work that I do, right? And so this affects their morbidity and or also mortality. And even a simple gallbladder can become something more complicated. So definitely, for me, this is practice changing.
0: Right. For me in the ER, I'm just going to pay a closer closer attention to the actual hemoglobin and and sort of reset the numbers where I sort of say, ah, oh, that's fine. Um, you know, look at the MCV, make a more concerted effort, maybe start adding iron studies, which is something we tend not to do very often in the emergency department. You know, maybe it's clinically appropriate in those circumstances to go ahead and just add it on because I can do something about it. And I have a captive audience. They're there. Maybe I can offer them an iron infusion and and just get things moving for for that patient's yeah. symptoms
1: for sure and i think we really have to strongly advocate for you know benign hematology of, ana- mm-hmm. of like especially anemia of having the, the ability for you not to be waiting years or I months know. To get an iron infusion and having to go to the merge instead to get an iron infusion. The
0: hematologists at my hospital are so busy with referrals, like they just can't, they just can't handle everything because they're they I mean, they work so hard. We gotta, I, <laughs> I hear all the emergency doctors and hematologists groaning right now because <laughs> we're like, oh, we need to investigate anemia more, but I, we do. It sounds like the evidence is pretty clear on that. How we do that and who does that, you know, that's that's up for the system to to
1: imagine sure. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. I'm Mojola Malay. I'm Blair Bigham. Until next time, be well.